0: Matthew chapter 4, and we're reading verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is God's words.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to see you here this morning. My name's Jack. Uh, I'm on the uh, pastoral leadership team here at Barney's. Uh, we're going to be working our way through uh, this passage uh, this morning. I want to begin uh, this morning by asking you uh, just to engage your imaginations uh, for a few minutes. And I want us to imagine that heaven has been drawn open and that you are standing in the throne room of God. The most awe-inspiring building you have ever entered, its arching roofs impossibly high, Angels and archangels watching your every move, cherubim and seraphim weaving in and out of the giant columns. And a giant throne stands on the dais. The Almighty seated with his power and might on full display. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and on his right side the sun, his hands and feet pierced, a wound in his side, yet exalted. Glorious, the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen. And as you stand there, you feel your throat tighten a little. You feel your heart begin to beat a little bit faster. As you feel your own unworthiness to stand in that place. And more as you realise that this throne room is actually more of a courtroom the divine courtroom where final judgment is given. And you are standing there in the dock, and you realise that you are the one who is accused. Will you be allowed into heaven? Will you be allowed into the presence of this holy God? And then a thin, reedy voice begins to read out your charged heat. Every sin that you have committed... Every moment of weakness, actions, thoughts, it doesn't matter. All of it is there. And as point after point is read, you begin to recognise something in the voice. You recognise the tone, the timbre. And as you look up at the prosecutor, the accuser, you realise that you know him. Because at each moment of failure in life that is brought up, it suddenly clicks for you he was there. At each and every temptation, your accuser was also your tempter. He might look respectable now in the throne room of God, but you have seen him with the facade down. Because he was the one who was whispering to you, your anger here is justified. You don't deserve to be treated like that. They need to be taught a lesson. It was his voice, his whisper, that late one night who urged you gently towards the computer screen. No one will see what happens here. You deserve a release. No one gets hurt in this. Don't worry, Jesus will forgive you. He was the one saying your financial security is so important, you need to look after yourself. Take the promotion, that extra money, it'll go so far, then you'll feel safe and happy. You'll have time to be with your family later. And he was the one whispering to you, saying, you're worthless. No one is going to care what you do anyway. Who would care about you? Just give in again. And you want to yell out, it was him. He was the one who was tempting me. But you stop as you realise just how hollow that would sound in this place. Because you know you were responsible. He tempted, but you gladly bought the lie. And as he finishes, his cruel eyes mocking you and he says, why are you here? After all this, what makes you think that you can stand in the throne room of God? And you stand with your eyes down, desperate not to look into the eyes of God that you assume can only hold disappointment, anger and frustration. How do you answer? If you were there, if you were standing in the throne room of God, what is your answer at that moment? What can you possibly say? Well, it's these questions that Matthew 4 helps us uh, to understand. Uh, And so as we begin, I'm going to pray for us uh, that we will be able to stand boldly and look at Jesus on that final day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth and that it speaks to us. And Father, I pray for all of us here today, for all of us who know our unworthiness, who know we don't deserve things. Father, we pray that you would be bringing the comfort that we need, uh, that you would be helping us to see and know and love the gospel uh, and how it works in our lives. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Well, have your Bibles open. We're going to be working our way through this passage. Uh, and it's a lovely little passage. It's very neat and well-organized. There's an introduction, there's a conclusion, and there's three nice little points in the middle. And so as we jump into the text, uh, let's have a look at the setup verses in verses 1 and 2. Uh, read with me there. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit... Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. In that little intro bit, there are a few things that jump out to us immediately. Uh, The most obvious is the definite sense of intentionality here. Uh, Jesus is being led by the Spirit to be tempted. Uh, This is not an accident, this is not the devil just springing Jesus by surprise, catching him unawares. Uh, Actually, the scene before, last Sunday, we saw where the Spirit literally descended on Jesus and the voice from heaven giving divine approval. And so we see that this is deliberate. This is happening for a reason. And a few further details flesh out the deliberateness of this scene. Uh, Jesus is led into the wilderness Uh, He's come from the River Jordan and he moves probably outside of Israel to the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, And this is a place of incredible significance for the Israelite people. Again, we've seen previously, you have John the Baptist who is mimicking Elijah, and this is the place where Elijah is taken up to heaven. But Elijah was mimicking someone else. Elijah was looking back to Moses one of the two great men of Israelite history, because this is also the place where Moses was said to have died, a standing on the edge of the Promised Land. Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, about to come to an end, but Moses will not enter into the Promised Land. Why? Well, because Moses sinned. He struck the rock, When he was given the water, he had proved himself unworthy, and so he is not allowed into the promised land, because Moses had given into the temptation in the wilderness. Uh, And as he stands on the edge of the promised land, Moses gave three sermons, essentially his last words, recorded in the book that we call Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Moses, great as he was, was not the leader that Israel needed, He'd been tempted to anger. He had succumbed. And this link is made strong by the fact that Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the way that the scriptures often point back to that original wilderness wandering. And so Jesus is led by the Spirit to this place which is just so full of significance, a place where both the failure of Israel and its leaders are on full display, but also a place where God's faithfulness to his wayward people shines through. God's people have routinely abandoned him, but God has never abandoned his people. And so with this background in place, with Jesus weak and hungry, we read that at this moment, the tempter arrives. Titles are important in this little passage, and notice the title that is given to the devil at this point. This is one of his functions to tempt, to draw people away from the will of God. And so let's start with the first two temptations. We'll take these both together. Verse 3, let's start there. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, there's a lot in there, of course. But this morning I want us to focus on not what the differences are, but what the similarities are between these two temptations. Because we can see a pattern that is established. Uh, firstly, both temptations are written in conditional form, that is, we have a if this, then that. But while the second half is different in each, stones to bread, miraculous rescue, the first half of both these temptations are the same. If you are the son of God, then do X, Y or Z. So even though the temptations are different on the surface, actually they're essentially the same temptation. The devil is trying to tempt Jesus out of his role as the Son of God, by subverting the will of God. But to really understand this, we need to understand what the title, the Son of God means, and how Matthew is using it. Uh, Because there's a mistake uh, that 21st century Gentile readers, in particular of the Bible, often make at this point. Because often when we read the Son of God, we think, ah, this is talking about Jesus' divinity. This is a po- title that points to the fact that he is the second person of the Trinity. But that's not actually the way it's being used. Because a first century Jewish hearer would immediately have thought of something else. The Son of God is not about Jesus' divinity, it is about his Davidity. Not his divinity, his Davidity. That is... When you read the title, The Son of God, you should think about King David, the Messiah. You should immediately think 2 Samuel 7. Because in 2 Samuel 7, God gives David's son the title the Son of God. Uh, 2 Samuel 7:14 says this: I will be his father, this is David's son, and he will be my son. And so everyone in the Davidic line has this title of the Son of God. But it has become obvious, starting with David and Solomon, that no one has lived up to this title. Israel is still waiting for the true David, the true Son of God, who will rescue his people. And so Jesus, when he takes on this title for himself, is saying, I am the Son of God. I will fulfill the promises of 2 Samuel 7. I will be perfectly obedient to God's will and where Moses failed, and where David failed, where every king from Solomon onwards has failed. And so what then is the devil trying to do? Well, the devil is trying to just just nudge him off that track, to do something, just tiny, that is at odds with God's will, to disobey God's will, and so bring down the ultimate Son of God. And so the voice of the tempter starts whispering. The same voice that whispered in Moses' ear, it's okay to get angry, just let your frustration out by hitting this rock. It's basically the same as what God told you to do anyway. These Israelites are the worst. You deserve that outlet. It's the same whisper, the same voice that said to David, just stay behind from battle just this once and go for a walk on the roof around midday. That'll be nice. Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, lives a few doors down. Who knows what you'll see? Can't hurt anyone just to look. Just turn this stone into bread. You're hungry. There's nothing immoral about eating a loaf of bread. You're about to go through a whole lot of hardship. It'd be smart to try before you buy. Just double check that God really has got you before you go through all of this. It'll make everything easier after this. And so what is Jesus' response to these temptations? Well, each time he responds with a portion of scripture that relates to the temptation. Remember, we're looking at similarities. And each response comes from the same part of scripture. Who does he quote each time? He quotes Moses and he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Because remember, geographically, he is standing at the same place that Moses stood to deliver Deuteronomy. He is channeling at this point both Moses and David, and both times his response is essentially the same. I will not depart from the will of God. I will not give into temptation. I will be the true and perfect son of God. And so we get to the third temptation. There's a sense in which this is the climax. Everything has been building to this point. Again, the geography in this passage is interesting. We've moved from on the ground in the wilderness, just Jesus and the devil. We then move to the top of the holy city, Jerusalem, the highest point of the temple. It's almost as though we have Israel on view at this point. And now we're moved to a very high mountain, a sort of mythical mountain from which you can see the whole world. Now we move from Israel to the nations. The whole world is on view. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And it's as though the devil at this point drops his mask. Uh, There's no nudging anymore. We expect him to say, if you are the son of God then, but he doesn't. Instead, we get verse 9. Looking out over the world... The tempter says, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And although the words, the Son of God, aren't there explicitly, you can see how implicitly they are there. It's just that the devil isn't being subtle anymore. Bow down to me, he says, not God. Worship me not God. Follow my will, not God's. Give up your role as the Son of God and I will give you the whole world. Power, prestige, I will crown you. You could have it all. But what is the real bite here? What is the temptation? Because won't Jesus get this anyway as the Son of God? Well, yes, But the devil is offering it all without Jesus having to suffer. He offers Jesus a crown without the cross. He offers Jesus exaltation without humiliation. He offers life without death. He offers power without service. Because Jesus knows that his path as the Son of God will involve suffering, humiliation, death and service. We read out 2 Samuel 7:14 just before, but I only read out the first half of that verse. The full verse of what the Son of God has to endure is there in 2 Samuel 7:14. I will be his father and he will be my son. But it goes on. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. What, what is going on there? What is this second half all about? Well, it is a hint of what is to come. It is the seeding of the divine plan. Because the perfect and innocent Son of God who deserves no punishment will stand in the place of humanity and suffer the punishment on their behalf. That's the punishment language from 2 Samuel 7. But more than this, the Son of God's perfect life will be given to humanity So that on that judgment day, in the throne room of God, Satan's accusations will fail. Because the believer will simply point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. And that is what will happen. Jesus will go to the cross, he will suffer in humanity's place, and his righteous life will be given to all who believe and call on his name. Because what the devil doesn't understand at this moment is that Jesus is not in this for power. He is not in it to gain prestige. He is not in it to gain even a crown. Jesus is in it for love. He will endure the cross because in that way he will win people away from the devil and for himself. And so he will be crowned not by himself but alongside the people that he has rescued. His actions are motivated by love for his fallen and sinful people. And so we get verse 10. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Notice that he changes the title for the devil here. It was the tempter, it is now Satan. We had an old lecturer at college who always referred to Satan as the Satan. He kept on saying it, and so we put our hands up and asked, why do you keep saying the Satan? His point was that Satan means accuser. It's a title. He is the accuser. He is the Satan, the one who accuses. And so it's really striking that at this moment of temptation, with the tempter title already used, that at the climax point of this story, Jesus sees the tempter and knows that it is also the Satan. He says, essentially, I see you, Jesus. You will not win this battle. And again, Jesus goes on, away from me, Satan, straight to Deuteronomy, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the result, verse 11, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Uh, The angels, presumably, from the second temptation, God is going to protect his Messiah. But of course, this is not the last time that Jesus will be tempted. Because as we move through the story, as Jesus' life unfolds, it'll be Peter who will attempt to move Jesus off the divine plan, persuade him not to go to the cross. And what is Jesus' reply at that moment? Get behind me, Satan. Satan. And surely the devil was there at the Garden of Gethsemane, asking Jesus, is this really worth it? Causing his friends to sleep when they should have been supporting him. And surely the devil was there at those last moments, as he breathed his last and cried out, it is finished. And yet, Jesus never wavered. Jesus, out of love for his people, did not ever step away from the plan. Because he loved us so much, he was not nudged off that track. And so we return to the throne room of God. As we imagine ourselves standing there, our imperfect life on full display for all to see, our eyes fixed on the ground, fearful of God's face towards us, the Satan's mocking voice saying, "'Why are you here?' What makes you think that you can stand in the throne room of God? What do you say? What do you do? Well, here is the good news of the gospel. We lift our eyes up in Jesus at Jesus and we see his eyes. And how does Jesus see us? He is looking down on us in love. We see his eyes looking at us in joy because we are his. He has saved us. He is the Son of God, our Rescuer, and he endured the cross for us. And so we look at the Satan and we raise our hand and we point at Jesus. Why am I here? Because Jesus said, I can be here. Because Jesus has said, I am his. Because Jesus is the Son of God and in him I am also a son and a daughter of God. And as the Satan protests, he looks down and his face drains of colour as he sees that the charge sheet is now blank. Because Jesus' perfect life is our perfect life. His life of righteousness is now our life of righteousness. His resistance of temptation is is our resistance of temptation. And it is on these grounds that we are able to stand in that throne room of God. And the Satan has nothing more to say. There is no one accusing. There is no punishment. There are no deep secrets hidden down, out of the way. Everything has been brought to the surface and it has been dealt with no judgment, just pure, unadulterated joy in being in the holy presence of God because we have been declared righteous based on Jesus' life and not our own. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, had this weird phrase where he would say that the gospel is external to us. The Christian life is lived outside of ourselves. What does he mean by that? Well, he's speaking about this. And what he's saying is that when we stand in the courtroom of our God, our defence is not internal. We don't look in at ourselves and say, here is why I deserve to be here. Look at what I have done. This is, by the way, the gospel of our world. This is what they tell you. Everything is loaded on the individual. You make the choices. You do you. You take responsibility for all your actions, for all the good ones and then the dark secret, for all the bad ones as well, for all the times that you gave in temptation, that you listened to those whispers. What an incredible burden to be carrying around. But here is the gospel of Jesus. Our defence is external. We don't point in at ourselves. The gospel is not how good a Christian I am, how much I've loved others. We don't point at how we've resisted the devil's temptations. We point at something outside of ourselves. We point at the life that Jesus has lived. We point at how he resisted in the wilderness. We point at his life. And so we can say, be gone, Satan. You have no power here. Which means that anyone and everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how your life has gone at this point, everyone can have this assurance of salvation because it does not rest on you. Your salvation rests on Jesus, on a life not about to be lived, but a life that has already been lived. A life that means that it is certain And secure. And all who call on the name of Jesus can have this joy and this security. Friends, the gospel of Jesus is such great news. And sometimes, amidst the busyness of life, we can forget it. We forget that we are not the Savior of this world. We forget that we are not the main character in this story. And we forget that we are worthy. That Jesus loves us so much that he would endure and resist all temptation so that we might be saved. You know, one of the amazing things about our little community here at Barney's is that all of us are on this spiritual journey. We're all at different points, with different concerns, different worries, different fears. But wherever you are at right now, wherever you are at this morning, no matter what is happening in your life Right now, it might be going really well. It might be going really poorly. The gospel is still the gospel. It is still the best news that you can have. And this is the gospel. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about how much Jesus loves you, not how much you love Jesus. It's not about what you do for God, but what he has done for you in Jesus. It's not about your life. It's about Jesus' life. And so let's leave with these glorious truths in our ears. For all who call on the name of Jesus, his righteous life is yours. The devil has no power over you. And no matter how you think about yourself, you can stand in the presence of a holy God who looks on you in love and joy with your worth caught up in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus has done. And we thank you for the impact that it makes on our lives. And Father, we're sorry for the times where we have bought into the world's lies that this is all about us, that we are the centre, that we are the centre character. But Father, we thank you that the Gospel that this is not about us it's not about what we do it's not about who we are it's not about how good or messed up our lives is it's about Jesus' life and all that he has done for us and so father wherever we are at this morning no matter how our lives are looking help us to keep Jesus at the center of our lives this week no matter the ups and downs of life that we're about to experience help us to know that our confidence and our assurance lies not in those ups and downs but in what Jesus has done, the way that he resisted temptation, the way that he went to the cross, he bore our punishment and he gave us his life so that we can stand in the presence of God. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.